I'm Ben, the author of Through All Ten Store. In this podcast, I take us into the Mega Dungeon to interview veteran GMs about the tools and techniques they use to create and run Mega Dungeons. Entire campaigns where the adventuring takes place in a single giant dungeon with hundreds of rooms spread out over many levels. I have so many questions to ask our GMs. Why run a Mega Dungeon campaign? How can you build a single adventure location so that it sustains excitement over more than 100 sessions? Mega Dungeons are huge. How do you even get started prepping them? To answer these questions and many more, I'm going to talk to the people who know best, the GMs with years of actual experience running amazing Mega Dungeon campaigns. Today, I'm excited to have Luke Gearing on the podcast. Luke is the author of Gradient Descent. He is a contributor to Pound of Flesh. He's the author of The Isle and Wolves Upon the Coast, among other things. And I'm going to be interviewing Luke about his current Mega Dungeon campaign, although I'm also hoping we can talk a little bit about his published Mega Dungeon, Gradient Descent, as well. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your current campaign? Yeah, so thanks for having me on, first of all, obviously. So the current campaign started because I end up with a lot of lunchtime breaks and I work from home at the moment. And when I used to work in the office, I had a D&D game that was like you know, OSR, general D&D, whatever. I ran at lunchtime. I was like, nah, I really miss that. You know what? We'll just start doing something that's really tight, really constrained, one hour a week. And I was like, well, okay, like, what format's going to work best for this? It's going to be open table, got an hour a week. So I was like, I want to do a mega dungeon. I've, I've always wanted to run just a mega dungeon. So yeah, it runs for an hour a week. We abstract anything that isn't the mega dungeon. So between sessions, we kind of hand wave purchasing equipment. If the players have any plans of progressing, we do that. If they're outside the dungeon, a week passes for each week of play. And yeah, that's been running for a little over a year now. We've got 54 sessions excuse me, 54 sessions spread over like maybe two years. So it's not every week, but it's as often as we can make it work. And yeah, it's using Delving Deep, as say OD&D, using a map that I started many years ago that was meant to be a, a Patreon thing, which I realized I didn't want to be doing that every month, just doing a whole dungeon floor or something. So I kind of repurposed it. So I've already got the first floor finished. So I was like, I'll just keep on with it. And uh, yeah, it's gone really well since then. Players seem to be really enjoying it. Could I ask you a couple of questions about the logistics and format for that? I've never played in a session that was as short as the one that you're talking about. I think most game sessions I play in are two and a half hours long or maybe three hours. I think I would understand how a one-hour session worked if, if you were playing with the same group of people every time and you just pause things where you left off. But it sounds to me like you're running an open table, which means it's a new group going into the dungeon afresh in each session. A full delve in one hour. How does that work? So is isn't quite a full delve. So the context is my like home games that I do with my friends in like real life. That's They're like an hour and a half to two hours, those games. So I'm quite used to like moving quite quickly and getting a lot done in a compressed time frame. But in terms of the open table open table format if they don't get out we pause play there so one thing that i found with open table play you end up with a, a stable of regulars regardless of obviously the whole west marches thing you're trying to avoid that but I, why push against it if a regular stable wants to form a regular stable forms that's fine and we just hand wave the weirdness of 
but you weren't here last session, which led to some funny situations where like somebody's first session, they join and they're like in the middle of a delve and it's, oh yeah, okay, so there's these pigmen that we're friends with and don't worry about it for now, but you can't talk to the goblins because we're trying to avoid them and we owe tax the elves and the new players, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I hit the spider with a mace or whatever. In terms of the actual keeping it moving, there's a couple of little tricks that I do. Sometimes if there's a hard decision that's in real time in the game, I just start counting down from five or ten. And that usually gets everyone to make a quick decision. So it'll be like, oh, if you're going to run to the east, put an X in chat. And if you're running to the west, put a Y in chat. Five, four, three, two, one. And everyone, ah, mash the keyboard to say where they're going. And that just works. You just put that pressure back on them. Sometimes you just allow for a more logistic-y planning session. And because it's open table, people will just... If, if they're not into that, they probably just won't turn up for that one. And that's fine. They can just be there for the fun bit. So yeah, we just try not to think about it, mostly. I, I used to do that with my original Dreamlands campaign, and it was nominally a Flail Snails game. And there, the house rule was because it was supposed to be dreamlike. If you were there, your character was there. And if they weren't, they weren't. And it just somehow made sense to everyone, just like it does in a dream. It did lead to very strange situations for me because I had formalized it as a house rule. I wasn't waiving it. For example, I had a player who regularly had some conflict and would come in like in the last hour of a three-hour session and the party was about to be destroyed by some thing and suddenly his face would appear and <laughs> re like ready to go and it, you know and, it, and he would roll in and it would like totally turn the tide and actually i really enjoyed that it had a kind of weird unexpected feature could you talk a little bit about the campaign that is what is the dungeon like how would you describe the mega dungeon they're exploring Yes, it's the dungeon's called Rutgast, not for any reason beyond I thought it sounded kind of cool. So it's a weird place because it's been made for like a long span of years. So the upper floors are much more intricately designed. So it's, oh, here is like the kobold space and here is like the pigman space. And other parts, the more recent ones where it's like shit, like sessions in 45 minutes, I need to roll up the next like bundle of rooms they're likely to go for. That's using more of a traditional stocking table method, which gives interesting results where sometimes it's like, oh, okay, this result like changes everything around it. So it varies. One thing I've done throughout this game is everything rolls reaction, unless it's like explicitly and always hostile, just going to eat you monster or like even animals they roll reaction which gives it a weird horrible storybook feel where oh the spiders will talk but they only speak goblin and they're spiders so they're like they're pretty horrible to talk to and they just talk about like how delicious you look and whatnot so like there's some pretty like nasty unpleasant stuff in there there's also quite a lot of especially when you need to improvise something a lot of the humor comes in there like they there's a room with some giant leeches and it was a flooded room and they're like man this looks horrible what do we do cleric cast speak with animals so i'd have to come up with some names so now the leeches are called like gary dave and quiet susan and that it gives a very interesting weird tone where it's oh these are horrible monsters that killed a hireling but also one of them's called quiet susan which yeah there's unpleasant stuff going on as there should be in a dungeon because obviously it's like a bad place like it isn't like a, a silly fun house it's quite an unpleasant fun house but it's ended up in a, a place a bit more like that i think and there's also some stuff that players are like man that was terrifying like fighting the dragon that chewed its own wings off and stuff like that they were like yeah that sucked that was awful the big thing really is the factions though because like they each have areas they all have relationships with each other and they've got their own kind of stuff going on for the players to get involved with which is yeah, I think I really like in Mega Dungeons is that factional aspect. You mentioned for more recent sessions, 
that you were using random stocking methods. Do you want to talk about that? So like what tables are you using and how do you find that works? So I slightly modified the Delving Deeper one, which as far as I know is just a clone of the OD&D one. Let me go. I've actually got it right here. That's what we're saying. So it's 2d6. Two is treasure, trap and treasure. Three trap. Four monster and treasure. Five monster. Six to eight is empty because empty rooms are really important, especially in a mega dungeon context. I find that's a whole other conversation. Nine monster. Ten is monster and treasure. Eleven is treasure, and then twelve is just special, which is like weird goofball odd stuff. Or that's the one where you write it more like I would have done four or five years ago. It's oh, this is the room where you treat it more like almost a creative writing exercise, or it's like the old as it Arnold K thing where it's, you just have something really weird in the dungeon, where it's oh you stick two limbs in a hole, they get swapped. That that kind of thing. That's special. So I'll, I'll roll those up, use the, again, delving deeper, so basically OD&D, monster stocking tables. And I've been playing with a few different ways of doing that, because like, you can roll on them just as is and have, oh, there's a chimera that lives next to the dragon that lives next to the lizardman. And that has its own interesting appeal, where it's, how does that work? And then you have to do the creative work of, okay, I'll, I'll make it work. The other thing I've done is where like I roll on that a few times, as okay, here's like the four types of monsters. So it might be like, oh, there's giant weasels, white apes, and lizardmen on this level and then use those to create a sort of sub stocking table just for those sections and that part of the floor more recently leaning more towards the just like just roll it and see what turns up and as they're getting deeper down there's less of a real world logical consistency and it's getting a bit more mythic underworldy where there's just horrible shit down here and we're not sure why it just is could you talk through maybe some of the effect where by trying to puzzle out how the things are related, you arrive at things you wouldn't have thought of or surprising connections emerge. Could you give us maybe an example of that? So a a, a small example, rolled up a very large Lizardman tribe. In Delving Deeper, the author Simon Ball decided to expand out the Lizardman a bit to beef up the entry to be equivalent to Orcs, which meant there's a lot more going on. So they have subgroups that live amongst them as OD&D orcs do which is a very interesting fun thing so like these guys live with a green dragon which is fun and then like only one room over it's 12 fire giants which a that's terrifying for these poor lizard men like they're gonna get owned so okay maybe they're not there right now but maybe the like fire giants must be coming through like a portal to the fire giant place because they live in like magma castles or whatever so they have a fire portal here and that's what they're coming through and they're planning to invade the lizardmen and then the players interceded for the lizardmen and that was like a very cool encounter where the player whose characters keep dying sacrifice himself nobly for a change and they use the captive fire god which is a whole other story to seal the portal without needing to fight the fire giants because obviously 12 fire giants is nobody's idea of fun and that's just from two rooms being next to each other there's another big one where i rolled a huge number of zealots or acolytes, whatever the, the phrase is in the book, on only level two. And I was like, that, there's like a hundred of them. That's a crazy encounter. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so we'll spread them out over these different rooms. Then I rolled a dragon on the same floor. And I was like, some of them worship the dragon, but they already decided that the that they worship Jubilex just because the slime god's fun. So, oh, they're having an internal schism. So then that became this whole thing where it's like, okay, the two cults collapse the bit between them. So now the slime cultists are fighting the dragon cultists, and they're not even particularly near the fill. But it's what are they going to worship on this floor? It's got to be the the you know the dragon because I'm using like a Google sheet that's just I've made the cells squares, so I can just turn it all black, and then you just fill in the 
cells you want to be rooms in white so it's very easy to go back and change your notes because it's all digital and it works really well for being able to just go back and, oh actually there's a connection here i didn't realize so it gives you that freedom to just keep changing things as you roll up more of that floor as well as having interdependence between floors as well obviously you want to have that vertical connectivity as well as the horizontal What's interesting is with the Acolytes, rolling up, as it were, another creature also gave you a a reason to divide the Acolytes into two separate factions. And so riffing on that connection, then you start to get a social scene. I mean, it was very similar in a way with the Fire Giants and the Lizardmen, too. You got a whole bit of world building there. You got a portal to another world out of it. You got the thought of an imminent threat. You got the thought of a, a faction being really outgunned by something looming right on the horizon. There was a lot there. You mentioned that you use reaction roles for everything and that everything that's in the dungeon is essentially an NPC is how it sounded. I mean, like the spider. Yeah, like almost everything. If it can't talk, that's notable sort of thing. You might not be able to talk the language, though. We're doing like Schrodinger's language, where you have language slots. You can say, oh, I can talk to this thing. I was like, okay, cool. Write down spider or goblin or whatever it is, which has its some weaknesses in open table play, but it's also quite funny that they keep finding new people who can speak to everything, so we've just let it slide. But yeah, having everything as NPCs, they know the dungeon's really dangerous, especially at first level, so their current go-to is anything they meet, they try and feed it cured meats. Because one of the players has Italian heritage, and he's really into that idea, so he's, oh, I carry Capicola, and I just give it to everything I meet. Do you like Capicola? If not, he says to the rest of the party, they're a faith enemy. Otherwise, yeah, eat, eat some cured meats, and we can hang out and be friends. Which... At first, it was going really well, where they were friends with everyone, and they kept agreeing to do stuff for people, and then suddenly four or five different kind of trackers, because I've got a notebook and I track what happens each session. It's like, it's been like two months since you spoke to this guy. He's pissed. Like, he's going to start taking proactive action. So we had, most recently, quite a few sessions where a bunch of those things triggered at once. So there was a mummy who the other fun thing is it's doing silly voices obviously because it's dnd so this moment will be like revenge every time they spoke to him as what's your deal so he wants them to kill some necromancers they met the necromancers and the necromancers there's two of them on opposite sides of a crypt who hated each other and they were like okay we've spoken to both the necromancers we promised each necromancer wants to kill the other one and the moment wants them both dead and then they're like, oh this is fine and they realize oh shit we really need to deal with that decide to side with one of them for various reasons and then they came back up to the first floor and the kobold faction was the first faction they made friends with because that gave them a secret entrance to the dungeon they lived right next to where the mummy was so the mummy was like all right sub these guys they're not doing what i've asked them to do so i'm going to conquer the kobolds and turn them into my crack elite attack force so they had a couple of sessions of war against the kobolds who used to be their allies which was very fun and made them be like shit we should sew up some of these loose ends we've left scattered all over the place uh, you, you get a lot of play out of that kind of everyone can be spoken to especially like the idea of because the dungeoners are outsiders they're also like troubleshooters for a lot of the more entrenched groups in the in the setting so that gives them a lot of play and a lot of reason to talk to people and be like, oh, hey, what can we do for you? Do you need something? How about you don't eat us? How about we're friends? The thing with the fire giants was interesting, partly because it was an unstable situation in itself. But I do think the more normal thing is that there's some kind of stasis. They're at some kind of stalemate or there's ongoing 
scheming or whatever. And the players enter as a kind of destabilizing force. For one thing, they're outsiders. So they're not already stuck in whatever conflicts exist. So they enter as that kind of chaotic sort of element. And that makes them useful to factions as potential solutions to various problems. I think what you were describing isn't that easy to pull off in the following way. My experience from both playing in games like that and having run them is that it it can be really hard to stay on top of all the loose ends, you know, especially with like a large and shifting player base, but even just without that, because I agree with you, my experience is that players start an awful lot of things that they don't finish, especially in these kind of open games. where they're driven largely by kind of player choice and faction play. Just how do you keep track of that? How do you handle that aspect of it? It sounds really silly, but I just write it all down in my notebook. So like each session, I write down the session name, whether they're continuing an old delve. If they finish it, I note down they finish the delve because when they get home, session ends. And when I'm like prepping for a session, like 15, 20 minutes before, I can just flip through what's going on and be like, oh, okay, they haven't paid the Elvish taxmen. So that's the thing that might crumb up this session. A lot of it is also in player memory because players are quite good at being like, teacher, we had homework. Well, it'll be like, I'll roll an encounter and it's the elves. And they're like, shit, we didn't pay them tax. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what they're looking for you for thing. Where I'm like, okay, now I'm back in the game. Now I remember. But there's two sides that the players are really good about having that institutional memory and being like, oh yeah, it's the goblins we're friends with again. They're hanging out. But also, yeah, just keeping... They don't need to be like super in-depth notes. Just if something happens, you just make a quick note, especially if it feels like it's going to come up again. If you can as well, there's the whole thing going on with Sean McCoy's, the new Warden's Operation Manual for Mothership, which just does like, just do a bullet journal for your game. Just have a page in the notebook that's just like going concerns. And you just check that at the beginning of each session and be like, oh yeah, these are all the things that you just haven't dealt with uh, and you can even put a mark down for how many weeks it's been since they last dealt with it and you can just be like it's been like three months since they last talked to these guys like something will have happened in the situation and you can use the reaction with that as well be like how well are they doing oh i rolled a two they're doing terrible they're desperate and they're really mad about it or like 12 they decided they don't need you and they don't fear you anymore so maybe they'll start start shit it's one of those ones where you can keep things ticking along in the background and kind of simulate it without doing the hard work of doing a little solo war game in the background. Just using little tricks like that. I I love that because it's so generalizable. It's also not rocket science. It's keep one notebook, have a going concerns thing, just maybe checks reaction roles as maybe a mechanic to decide how things are progressing or what's going on. I think it's useful to have something that's general that way. I have myself been developing systems for this kind of thing in my own games, which are keyed to what the premise of the campaign is. So like in my face-to-face game, I I have a a game where the players are, you know, it's another Dreamlands game, but it has a different premise than a door is open. They're like all traveling through the memories of a dead dreamer and they've inherited all her estate, but also all of her problems and old enemies and things. And so I have all these randomized things in the background that are basically happening in the waking world. I'm rolling each time to see what kind of troubles are popping up and boiling. And I just created a bunch of tables for that. But what I don't have is just the kind of very basic, (laughs) more common sense way of just keeping track of everything in game. And so I think 
yeah, I think things like that are super useful. Yeah, and it's one of it's just so easy. And like the first time I read it in the first draft of the Wounds Operation Manual, I almost hit myself in the face. That's so obvious and it's so good. Every one of my campaigns has its own notebook now. I just just get a really cheap fifty pence exercise book because they don't need to be big. It's just tiny little notes usually, and it just it works so well. It makes such a difference to how I run games. It just it's great. Because I'm one of those people who always forget, and that means there's never any consequences, which you want consequences, right? That's part of agency and all that. I I have the feeling like 99% of our problems would just be solved by like extremely simple things that, (laughs) you know what I mean? You mentioned something earlier. Could we come back to that for a second? You said empty rooms are really important in a mega dungeon. What 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 was the thinking behind that? So this is like partially it ties into the whole thing, like old school games, partially they're like resource management, right? Um, and if you want to be really boring, you'd score one pot of treasure and you'd just go home. That's the most boring way to play and it's probably optimal apart from increased amount of random encounters. Um, but each room is a gamble. So if you have every room has treasure or monster or trap, then there's no gamble because you know there's something behind the next door. One of the big early big dungeons that I bought I'm severely disappointed by, author won't be named. Oh, you can edit it out. Maze of the Blue Medusa. Really not great dungeon because every room's got something in there. Every room can kill you. And the player's just like, why are we here? We're not finding anything out. We're just finding more shit to kill us. That was a big moment for me. I was like, okay, so empty rooms. The other thing that empty rooms do is they are tactical terrain. So a really cool thing that happened was my players had mapped out an area. I think it was when they were fighting a dragon. So they had a big wooden funnel and they had some dragon killing poison. And they, because they'd mapped and they knew where all the empty rooms were, they baited the dragon into a long, thin corridor. Then they could run around behind and jam it in there. And because those rooms were empty and they knew they were all safe, they knew that this was a safe route to do where they could flip around, trap the dragon from behind, and then shove a funnel in its mouth and pour dragon poison in. And part of that is driven by those empty rooms. The other thing empty rooms do is if treasure is sometimes hidden in them, if a treasure room looks like an empty room, then it's do we search every room? Maybe not. Depends how well they're doing, depends how early on they are, depends how far into the session we are. And those are all kind of interesting questions. And it it feels a little more plausible as well, which I think is important. But obviously this comes, the whole important thing is like empty rooms aren't empty. They just don't have a trap treasure or monster in. They might have information. They might have like a big hint to what's going on somewhere else they might be a, just a defensible position to fall back to or you like you can camp out there if your players are feeling really brave the empty rooms aren't empty seems like an important principle because i think the worry one has is that they will be boring oh there's an empty room oh there's another empty room <laughs> oh there's another empty room sounds boring but if they're not really empty, there's still stuff going on, stuff to note, stuff to learn, stuff to explore. It keeps the exploration aspect of it alive. But I think this point, though, also that risk-reward is all about informed gambles. The high-pressure play is about gambling. It yeah. really is. That's the idea. That's the fun, pushing your luck, not knowing what's going to happen. It's hard to have that kind of gambling aspect if you always know that there's going to be somebody on the other side of the door, or you always know I'm moving into the next trap space, 
there's no resource management in that kind of a way. I know Zarkov in Neoclassical Geek Revival has XP, XP for exploration. And it's like each room is worth like logarithmically more. Well, the first room, you get 10 XP. The second room is worth 20 XP. The third room is worth 30 XP. And when you go home, that counter resets to nothing. And you only get the XP for each unexplored room you visit. So the longer you go without playing it safe, the more XP each room is worth. But you're increasing the chance that you bump into something really nasty. Like, oh, there's a Hydra. Let's go. Which is an interesting way of like doing the whole incentivization aspect of that. That's a whole other discussion. So good. Okay. You have actually authored a mega dungeon. You wrote Gradient Descent for Mothership as, as a survival horror sci-fi role-playing game. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the challenges or opportunities were for writing a sci-fi mega dungeon. Yeah, the first like difficult thing Gradient Ascent is it's it's really big. It's fucking huge, which was a lot of work. I did that one by stealing time at work. I so I had an Excel spreadsheet that I actually mapped it out on and I used Notepad just to write the actual fills for that. And so that's it started off written in prose and then we condensed that down to the bullet points. It wasn't originally written in that kind of bullet point style. Especially trying to do like a science fiction rather than like science fantasy, you've got a bit more of a limited palette to paint with in terms of the factional stuff can feel a bit weird a bit shoehorned in you wouldn't have the diversity of monsters time about some of the stuff we said great in a sense interesting because there aren't really any there's very few actual like capital m monsters it's leaned back into the oh everyone's an npc the original genesis was like oh we'll do something with ai we'll do something with androids and there's this kind of real sadness to gradient descent where it's yeah all the androids they're just human beings who have been like made this way which is very chilling when i saw some players but like, i want to play the troubleshooters and kill the androids it's like what the fuck's wrong with you <laughs> that's awful like it's if you have to fight them because like they are in between you and like survival and the objective then it's like this kind of like tragic like classic horror thing where it's like we don't want to do it but you're forced with a situation because science fiction i think you don't want to make it too much about the science fiction aspects because it's always like a, a dark mirror reflecting something about reality or something like that and i think that kind of idea of an overbearing pressuring force works really interesting science fiction is you need to have something that you're maybe thinking about um or like an arena of like different themes and ideas that you're playing with because if you just try and hit it and do a random stock one i think it's going to feel a lot thinner so the way we got around that gradient descent, um, being androids, there's a lot of different types of androids. There's a couple of different factions of different androids who want different stuff, and a lot of them are made by like a runaway rogue AI, and a lot of them feel various different ways about that. So some of them like must worship it like a god. Some of them are like the AI's neglected children. One of them's like a subroutine that's gained a bit of like self-awareness and has a kind of weird, ambivalent relationship where it's very different to the big ai but there's kind of similarities there so yeah it's a lot tougher but it's a very rewarding for those who don't know would you tell us what the basic premise of gradient descent is so there's an android factory like an orbital android factory that produces androids so synthetic humans and at some point the company who owned it tried to automate it all using an ai to run the entire thing which went as well as you'd expect so now it's abandoned the ai is still there some of the machinery inside still works but the interesting thing is whatever the ai is doing that's called monarch the ai that runs it whatever monarch's doing 
it's creating artifacts potentially as a side effect, potentially deliberately. And these artifacts, because it's like a super advanced AI, it, they, a lot of them break the laws of physics. They're way beyond what humans can achieve. So they're extremely valuable. So there's this class of people called divers who enter into this facility and take the artifacts and bring them back out. So it's very much like the Stalker video games and indeed the book Roadside Picnic in that kind of idea of there's this illegal space, but there's people who go into it to bring something back from the outside and the risks thereof. In this case, one of the big risks beyond death is finding out you were secretly an android the whole time because Monarch is very unpleasant and plays this idea of, oh, you were actually an infiltrator android that's like, living amongst humanity for me this whole time and whether that's even true or not because monarch's very smart and it does some interesting stuff with player agency and the nature of player backstory where like you weren't an android but now you were all along which is very weird and very interesting i think as a like because horror gives you that permission to directly attack the player in some ways obviously not like in a safety boundary kind of way but in a like a audience attack the audience kind of way because you want to feel uncomfortable with horror and it's supposed to be like ah so that's the idea with that one and so monarch is creating these androids that are indistinguishable except with a special device after death yeah (laughs) but it's good it's a good premise and is like trying to replace people and send them out into the world to accomplish its ends one of the terrifying things about the dungeon is that monarch is like trying to develop scans of the players both to use information against them but also to create replicants of them and that is extremely unsettling and then it's very clever this idea that in horror gaming making the player uncomfortable is like a crucial is a a crucial idea i think is super interesting too i do think one interesting thing about the physical book or the pdf is how much information is conveyed and conveyed in different ways i do think of this as a mothership strength a kind of information design element this is i think something really important with mega dungeon publishing actually i was talking to gus and he was talking about having just read art in full 1000 page long mega dungeon which might be really good but it's a thousand pages so it's like a (laughs) real problem and there are reasons why it's a thousand pages a mega dungeon is a mega dungeon and if it's mega and if you're going to play this kind of faction rich kind of game and you're going to add in layers of secrets and histories and interconnectivity between levels and things. There's a lot of information that's necessary to convey. But one thing that is amazing about Gradient Descent, which I'm holding in my hands as I speak to you right now, the physical form of it, is that it's 61 pages plus end papers. Do you want to talk about how you all thought about information? design and presenting mega dungeon material yeah so a lot of the information that's encoded visually started as like my text notes because uh at the beginning it was like okay what are the things that we need to know because it's not just a, a dungeon it's like this industrial sci-fi space it's, is there gravity is there light what scale of size is it and one thing we realized is we don't want to do like a one-to-one mapping like a traditional dungeon map which is where the idea of this circuit diagram came from, where instead of it's like a flowchart, 
effectively, right? So that was like a big brainwave. It was like, okay, if we do that, then we can encode a lot of other stuff based on like colors we use and even just little tags like no O2, dead easy, just a little like no smoking sign style thing. So a lot of that was driven by Sean and David, and I'm sure Jarrett was involved in it as well. Really fantastic ideas in terms of that kind of very, because as a lot of people probably know, I'm very much focused on like the text aspect, maybe to the exclusion of other things. Um, so I think Sean was really keen. At, okay, how can we compress this even more? Let's use even less words because it's got to be like a zine. It's got to be tight. There's no room for anything spare. So what can we do to overload that visual thing and overcode that? So it's like how much information can a color hold? How much relationship when you have like even little bits like oh if the page background's white it means that the lights are on like what a great idea uh, I, know. <laughs> I know it's brilliant it's actually brilliant because fine when i run stuff not so much stuff i myself wrote just those kind of baseline environmental factors which are really the first thing you need to tell someone who's playing, are the lights on, will influence everything that follows? Yeah. Or is there gravity? <laughs> will influence everything about how you describe the kind of space. But it's actually surprisingly hard to hold in your head those kinds of things. And so I do think that like color coding is like very, that's very clever and I think really useful. Yeah, yeah it reduces that like mental burden on the GMs. They can focus on running a really good game without needing to think about it all the time like sometimes you forget oh this room zero gravity it's fine everything still works but it's really useful to just be like oh i don't need to think about it i can just look at the fill and be like yeah okay the lights are on there's gravity oh there's some quivering pillars of flesh like you you can just do that like without needing to think about it too much which means that you can focus on that horror i think it's because of a horror thing where a lot of it's in like the way you present you don't necessarily want those bigger descriptions, which obviously runs very contrary to the way like KSM does Call of Cthulhu Adventures. Um, but you don't want to belabor the point. You want to have it so it's like, here's the shit, you focus on presenting it in the way that's going to be effective at your table. Um, I think Gradient Descent done really well with that in terms of the visual design of everything. I do think this is like a hard topic to talk about. It's interesting that it came into your design here because... Certain kinds of gaming depend on subtle atmospherics and what's happening between people at the table in ways that others don't. I feel a kind of jocular faction-based, at the end of the day, really pretty light in its tone. Dungeons, it just depends a lot less on creating an ambiance that you hold and that you can read what's going on with people and telegraph to them. And I, I do think horror gaming is different that way. I do think you have to attend to a different kind of set of things. It's not the silly voices. Yeah, not mainly. Sure. It's not mainly the yeah. silly voices. It's not mainly, oh, I love to hate this guy. What a great... Of course, you do want to have NPCs who you love to hate. That's a staple of any kind of gaming. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do think that there's something that differs by genre a lot. Oh, so I think a lot of it's like the player buy-in. Like you say you're playing a horror game and players are going to be like, oh, okay, like I'm playing a horror game. But it's definitely a much harder thing to achieve in online play. Like... Some of my most like effect, but like fantasy is weird because it can turn to horror very quickly depending on the thing. But it's very unlikely to do that again on an online thing because there's something about the you don't have that 
there's no cross talk where like people are having side conversations and people can't like visibly lean in so you don't get this feedback and i think everyone kind of pings off each other with that sort of thing whereas if i'm giving off like the, the body language that i'm like oh i'm a bit then you're gonna be like oh i'm a bit weirded out as well that something's going on but yeah no it, it is tough and i think a lot of it is about player buy-in like i want to be spooked out and weirded out by this thing like sometimes you can do little things like i've done stuff like whispering in microphones when like people aren't expecting it like, without warning because we play usually without cameras on so i can just be like whispering the camera somewhere like whoa like what what's going on but yeah it's a lot harder to achieve and yeah, you have to have a much finer sense of where your players are at or at least it helps if you have a really good sense of where the players are at to give that kind of horror atmosphere and make it a bit more i don't say relentless because it's like tension and then release whereas like a mega dungeon straight up dungeon bash it's go whereas your yeah, horror is very much like the slow build up a little bit and then you release and a little bit and then you release it's like a sponge if you just squeeze it you let all the water out but if you like squeeze it a little bit and let some water flow in and you keep repeating that motion it gets way wetter but the water's being scared <laughs> So one thing that I think is super interesting about Gradient Descent, uh, a kind of mind-blowing idea, which is like the how idea. The thing is that the dungeon is like being run. It's much more chaotic than that, of course, because there's a lot that's going on in this place. And a lot of it is working in complicated cross relations with Monarch, the AI. But the dungeon is hostile to you in a very specific way in that there's a kind of ever-present NPC who is extremely frightening and who is like working in subtle and terrifying and somewhat incomprehensible ways. And I've never seen that before. In, in a way, the dungeon is personified. It's the hostility of, say, a mythic underworld kind of space where this is a space of peril, this is a space that works against us, this is a space that is in some ways inexplicable. In Gradient Descent, that's personified in something that you can work with or against in various ways. And I've just never seen that before. First of all, it's amazing. I just saw it as a kind of translation into the horrifying sci-fi trope of Hal. I can't do that for you, Dave. The horror in that kind of trope is being used as a way of interpreting kind of the idea of a mega dungeon as this kind of yeah. hostile, inhuman, inexplicable kind of force in in this way i so i just thought that was neat i because um, it's in some ways it's like a haunted house with a single malignant I, presence right but in other ways it's because there's the whole idea of like when you explore a mega dungeon because it's so big some of like inevitably some of the not just the author but the person running it some of that begins to bleed through and particularly if you wrote it and now you're running it they're almost dungeon crawling your brain a little bit which is a very weird concept but then it's that's because monarch is the space personified it also is the ultimate adversarial gm where like they're pushing you and prodding you and trying to make you fail and there's this whole idea of sometimes you like monarch will talk to you and ask you things and there's this kind of horror of like complicity where it's oh no i'm involved and i think there's a real as, as somebody who isn't the victim of a lot of things in like the real world there's that horror of realizing that makes you a beneficiary of the system and it's oh that's 
wretched that's awful because you didn't even ask for it which i think is part of that idea as well where it's your part of the machine quite literally in this case but it's yeah that's those are some of the kind of things we were thinking about as well as the kind of making you doubt your own identity and realizing you're a robot <laughs> yeah monarch wants certain things done yeah and, and then you've got to ask what like, why do you want me to take this artifact out of here? Because there's some of the there's the big consequences page at the back. If you do this thing, like something really bad might happen to the rest of the universe, and it's your fault. And Monarch might want that. Monarch yeah. Might be like, yeah, go for it, man. No, the reason I really like that is I, I partly that I just don't think any players would want to work with Monarch because Monarch is terrifying and it seems like I think people will read monarch as malignant rightly but that makes it so much better the fact that it's trying to get you to do things for it and you might be like tempted to do it or not do it or pretend that you're doing it it just feeds this really interesting relation to it's as if the dungeon could speak and ask you to do things you know, yeah. that you no, don't sure. really want yeah. to do. And then there's, it's got that kind of Faustian sort of bargain in addition to everything else about talking to you about your childhood and whatever other yeah. horrible things it can do after it gets in your head and scans your brains. And yeah. No, it's definitely, like I say, it's, it's very personalized despite being a book that I don't know anything as the author about anyone running it, but it's like the books, yeah, get under the player's skin, like really make them feel it. Which is like you say, the fun design space of horror is making people uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe this is a good place to wrap up. Luke, if people wanted to find you and your work, what would the best place for them to go do that be? The best place is probably the blog, which is lukegearing.blog.im. I am on Twitter, unfortunately, and then there's books everywhere. So your best bet is to go on the blog and there's a link to all the published works there and the itch and all the rest of it. Because there, there's more than a few out there these days. <laughs> My parents were always like, oh, how many is it now? I'm, like, well, I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> I lost count. So yeah, the blog's the best place. I will certainly include links to that in the show notes. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Luke. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much for having me on. This was a blast. <laughs>